All right, in this episode, we're going to talk about diabetes mellitus medications from the perspective of the athletic trainer. And so before we get into the medications, let's just review really quick what diabetes is. And there are several different types of diabetes, but we're going to primarily focus on uh, diabetes mellitus type 1 and type 2. And so remember that type 1, generally speaking, is what we traditionally used to call juvenile onset diabetes. We don't really call it that much anymore, but you might see some of the literature uh, references still speaking to it in that context. And this is basically where there's destruction of beta cells within the pancreas. And those beta cells are responsible for producing insulin. Um, type 2, which we traditionally thought of as speaking to it as adult onset diabetes, which we, again, we don't really refer to it that much anymore um, as that. We see it as type 2, but you might still see it in the literature as type 2, or excuse me, as um, adult onset. Um, but that's basically where there's um, cellular resistance to insulin. Um, and so remember that insulin binds to glucose to help carry it into the cell so that the cell can use it for energy. So we need insulin. We need it in adequate, quick quantities, and we need the body to be able to use it readily in order to just survive. So 10,000 foot view really quick. Type 1 diabetes is traditionally autoimmune. Um, we don't understand the exact mechanism, um, but it's thought to have some kind of both infectious or environmental factors that can trigger it. Um, again, we traditionally used to see this early on in, um, in the lifespan, but it's grown over time that we're now seeing it in some individuals um, as late as their late 20s, even early, early 30s. Um, but we most commonly see it start to occur during adolescence. Family history is typically unremarkable. We don't see a strong genetic lineation with it in that sense. Um, symptoms can include polyuria, polyphagia, polydipsia, weight loss, ketosis, blurred vision, slow healing sores, um, and a tingling paresthesia almost affecting the feet, the toes specifically. Body weight for this individual is usually pretty normal or might be a little bit on the low side before it's diagnosed. Um, and we manage this, again, type 1 with diet, exercise, and insulin therapy. When we look at type 2 diabetes, we're looking at this, again, this cellular resistance to insulin. Um, and type 2 diabetes accounts for about 90% of the diabetes cases that we see in patients usually onsets over the age of 35 years old. It's gradual over time. We can see it coming. We can see these kind of pre-diabetic markers with lab work and things like that. Um, there's typically a familial history of, of uh, type 2 diabetes or at least a lot of the characteristics that we associate it with like obesity, hyperlipidemia, hypertriglycerides, um, hypertension, all those kinds of things. Um, as those are lifestyle factors that can contribute to type 2 diabetes as well as like a sedentary lifestyle with a lack of movement. Um, they can be fairly asymptomatic for years um, and just kind of have some kind of general symptoms like fatigue or dry or itchy skin, um, but they don't typically think too much of it. Um, again, these individuals are overweight or obese. Their insulin levels may be normal, or they may be low, but remember, we're worried about the ability for that insulin to enter and penetrate the cell. Um, 
And we also can manage these with diet and exercise as well as anti-diabetic medications, which are traditionally more oral-based versus the insulin therapy for the type 1, which is more of uh, an injection-based. So complications that stem from diabetes, irregardless of type 1, type 2, um, retinopathy. So pathologies that are affecting the retina, vision can start to go, detachments, neuropathies, or I'm sorry, um, nephro, nephro um, or kidney pathologies can start to occur. From a cardiovascular standpoint, myocardial infarctions or heart attacks, um, hypertension, which we all know is high blood, plesh, high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, which is an abnormal or high amount of blood, uh, lipid levels, fat levels, as well as stroke. Um, ketoacidosis, this is where there's a high amount of ketones floating in the blood. Ketones are a byproduct of just normal cell metabolism. Um, and the kidneys usually filter these out, no problem. But when they build up, they can actually change the pH level of the blood and cause a lot of systemic problems. Um, impotence, non-traumatic amputations. We see a lot of individuals with diabetes, not a lot, but we can see individuals with diabetes that don't take care of themselves, may not do wound checks especially on the feet where they might have decreased sensation and, and decreased amount of quality blood flow. So any kind of minor sores, scratches, lacerations, whatever it may be, can actually become infected over time or not heal very nicely. Um, same thing with the, with the mouth, dental disease uh, because of that poor blood flow. Um, and as well as a lot of pregnancy issues can stem from diabetes in individuals um, during the pregnancy and fetal development. Um, diagnosing diabetes is not very straightforward. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but essentially what we're looking at is, um, signs and symptoms of diabetes mellitus, which we've kind of already gone over a little bit, as well as a casual blood glucose concentration of under 200 milligrams per deciliter of blood. Um, so casual meaning it's just taken sporadically. We're not planning to take it at a certain time. Um, if we start seeing these blood levels um, abnormal, then that's when we start to think, okay, we may have a, you know, a diabetic issue here on hand, especially if we have got these other symptoms occurring with it. Um, their fasting glucose should be greater than or equal to 126 milligrams per deciliter of blood after an eight-hour fast in this case, um, or a two-hour plasma glucose of greater than or equal to 200 milliliters per deciliter of blood um, during an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, so we're looking at essentially high levels of glucose in the blood. Um, so let's talk a little bit about glucose metabolism for a second. We understand that food is metabolized and among the things that it's broken down to is glucose, which is a form of sugar. And we know that that sugar is an energy source that the, beta, that the body uses. Beta cells of the pancreas are responsible for producing insulin. This insulin is a hormone and it binds to these glucose um, to essentially facilitate the cell to use the glucose. Um, you might have heard of glycogen, which is the stored form of glucose. Um, that's also a part of all of this. Um, and then when you get excessive glucose, it's excreted by the kidneys into the urine. Um, so part of doing like a urinary analysis, we might look at glucose levels in the urine that that could be indicative of some kind of hyperglycemic response. Um, not all tissues, though, require insulin to absorb 
glucose, the brain being one of those, for example, it's able to um, power itself in a lot of ways. And as such, the tissues don't require that facilitation of glucose with insulin. Um, the liver is another one. It doesn't really require that insulin for glucose absorption, but it does help to improve it if it is available. Um, all right, so from a management perspective, diabetes management perspective, um, if we're looking at insulin, which we would probably do with a type 1 diabetic, first and foremost, we're going to educate them. There's lots of different types of, of insulin. The importance of understanding lifestyle management with exercise and proper diet um, and proper glucose monitoring. So we want to see a patient, generally speaking, at or below 100 milligrams per deciliter of blood. If they're flirting towards 101 to 120, 125 milligrams per deciliter of blood, we consider that to be more pre-diabetic. And when we have this 126 plus milligrams per deciliter of blood, they're essentially considered diabetic. Another marker that we can look at is their uh, hemoglobin A1C, or you might see abbreviated as HbA1c. And we want to see this at or below 6% in the normal population. If diabetics are having a hard time really managing their diabetes, um, we can generally sometimes say 7% or lower is better, but really we want to see a 6% or lower uh, is good. And this hemoglobin A1c looks at glucose levels over a period of time, typically a two to three month block. Um, and so for a, non, a normal non-diabetic individual, their hemoglobin A1c is in the four to 6% range. Um, again, going back to those lifestyle factors, diet and exercise, we want to probably promote some kind of weight loss, reducing body fat, because this will help to reduce cholesterol and blood pressure, which we just know is good for healthy living. Um, if we're considering them to be a candidate for diabetes mellitus type two, promoting these lifestyle changes can actually reduce their, the, uh, the risk or even delay the onset or even quote unquote cure them of, of uh, type two diabetes. We can see that with uh, type two. Um, this could be beneficial for type one diabetics, um, but the patient should be monitored closely at the beginning of sharp changes in glucose glycogen use, like increasing activity exercise, um, because we just don't know how the body's gonna react. Everyone does react a little bit differently to how these spikes and changes work. So we don't wanna get too crazy too quickly. Um, we'd want the patient to probably monitor their, their glucose levels more closely, more frequently. Um, if they are going to start changing their workout style or the intensity of the workout. Um, so that kind of being said, if the glucose levels are normal in an individual at the beginning of a workout, chances are they're going to drop over the course of the workout. So generally speaking, I ideal kind of number to think about with diabetics is that they should be consuming around 10 to 20 grams of carbohydrates um, when during the course of their workout if it's going to be sustained and lengthy um, and as well as decrease insulin before exercise to kind of compensate because there's going to be that increased need. Um, <clears throat> there is also oral drug therapy, which we'll talk a little bit more here in a second. We see this more with the type two diabetics, but I want to talk about insulin therapy first. Um, we talk about insulin therapy with type one diabetics, 
Sometimes you'll see it with type 2 diabetics, but not usually, um, as well as uh, gestational diabetes, which we're not going to get really into much, um, but that's diabetes that affects um, uh, a mother during pregnancy. Um, and that can resolve usually after the pregnancy is over, but sometimes the effects of it can linger on. So we're not going to get into that now. Um, we will talk probably a little bit more about that when we get to Gen Med. Uh, but if you do have a patient with gestational diabetes, they absolutely are going to be monitored by um, OBGYN and maybe endocrinology. Um, so insulin therapy is going to be derived from some kind of resynthesized DNA sequencing um, of humans. Um, way back when, it used to be derived from pigs and cows, and we don't really do that anymore um, as we can artificially kind of create it. Um, we want to make sure that the site of the administration is changed up because we can have a lot of health complications that can result if we continuously use the same site time and time again when we're using needles to introduce insulin into the body. Um, so before we get into the types of insulins, I just kind of want to point out that insulin is, is not shelf stable. It's usually something that we need to utilize in a certain amount of time. It probably is going to require some kind of refrigeration. It cannot be exposed to extreme temperatures. You'll basically render it like useless. Um, so if you're traveling, for example, maybe you guys are in a hotel that doesn't have a refrigerator. Um, most hotels will have a refrigerator that you can quote unquote rent um, for a fee. But if you let them know that you need it for diabetic medication, for example, they usually will just let you use it for free. But I feel like most hotel rooms nowadays have uh, refrigerators in them. But if they don't, you can always ask. Um, if not, you'll have to get a little creative ice buckets or something like that to keep it um, to keep it stable. You might want to follow up though ahead of time before you end up at a location where um, you're not sure if there's a refrigerator available or not. Um, you always want to make sure that you're inspecting the insulin. They're, they're going to come in clear vials, so you should be able to clearly see past you know the glass. There might be a label, but you should still be able to see enough of the of the fluid the insulin fluid to see if it, it looks okay. It should be kind of just this uniform, clearish color. It really shouldn't be cloudy or clumpy or anything like that. Um, our patients are gonna use small syringes to inject these. Um, you can reuse the needles. You're not technically supposed to, but you can. It is a way to um, uh, reduce cost as well as have to reduce the amount of supplies you might have to carry, but um, technically you're not supposed to do that. Um, patients, are, typically speaking, are pretty self-sufficient with their insulin administration. They know what they need to draw. They know how to do it. They know where, what site to use, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is not beyond you as an athletic trainer to just make sure that you understand what their regimen is, how to help them. It, we'll talk about this here in a second, but if they become incoherent for a few reasons because insulin levels are misbalanced, you might need to help them administer it. And so understanding the process ahead of time can help save you a lot of time and frustration um, and help get that patient stabilized quickly. Um, so sometimes we'll see, or a lot of times we'll see if patients are not using an insulin pump, they might be drawing insulin from what we call an MDV or a multi-dose vial. Um, and so you need to make sure that you're in protecting the integrity of that vial, meaning that we're using um, clean syringes, clean needles when we're introducing it to the vial, that we're cleaning off the top of the vial, that we're not using the vial beyond the expiration date from when it was opened, um, so on and so forth. 
If they do use an insulin pump, we're making sure that they're changing the site of the pump, meaning where the pump um, enters into the body needs to be changed fairly frequently, typically speaking every three to five days, some a little bit more, some a little bit less, just kind of depends, and that that pump is set appropriately um, with the appropriate amounts and types of insulins. Uh, speaking of types of insulins, I do want to hit on these very briefly. There's um, five essential types of of insulins and then there's several subtypes within those. I don't really need think we need to get too much down the rabbit hole with these, but I want you to just kind of understand that not all insulins are created equal. So the first type is rapid acting. Uh, the common brand names that you'll see are like Novolog or Humalog. Um, Humalog, for example, is a preprandial uh, insulin, meaning that we take it before a meal versus Novolog is a postprandial um insulin that we would take after a meal um they act they act quickly thus the name rapid acting um we don't want to take them too fairly quickly before or after a meal because that can um cause a spike in insulin and that's going to basically absorb what little glucose is floating around and, and cause the patient to essentially crash into uh into a diabetic response um short acting uh, these usually last for about five to 10 hours. Uh, their onset of action is a little bit slower than the rapid acting, but they last a little bit longer. Um, but again, we need to be careful with like using these before meals because they can, because of this delayed onset. Um, we have immediate acting insulin, the third type, um, or excuse me, intermediate, not immediate, intermediate acting insulin. Um, this insulin action is dependent on the individual user um, as their response and their um, glucose levels can kind of vary in how much they use. So you don't see this one a super ton, but you might see it here and there. Um, but it's very individualized as far as how they react and how long it takes the individual person to react to this intermediate acting insulin. Um, the fourth one is this long lasting or long acting insulin. Um, these are Sometimes similar to the other ones, they just might be an extended release type of, of uh, insulin. Um, we don't recommend these for acute glucose control because they're designed to be utilized by the body slowly over the course of time. So if we're worried about some kind of diabetic coma type of response, I'm thinking rapid acting type of insulin. I'm not looking at these long acting insulins. These long acting insulins are really going to be more for like bedtime where we're worried about shifts in glucose levels over the course of, of night when the person is sleeping. Um, but they do make devices like some of the pumps, for example, or some of these isolated site monitors that can actually wake or beep or buzz um, not only the patient, but maybe a partner or spouse or a parent um, if insulin glucose levels are changing drastically so that they can help fix the problem since this person may not be necessarily coherent. Um, and the last type of insulin are, are combination insulin, which is a, just basically a two or more combination of any of the other four that we've already talked about. The, the nice thing about these is that they usually require less injections over the course of the day and help to sustain more normal insulin levels over time. Um, all right, so shifting gears a little bit, adverse effects of insulin therapy hypoglycemia or insulin shock, sometimes you'll see it called, uh, called as, is very life-threatening. 
Um, and this is why we need a patient to stick to a fairly strict regimen of their diet, exercise, medications, so that they don't flirt with this hypoglycemia a lot. Um, what I'm worried about is, is if they do become hypoglycemic, they're going to become weak, drowsy, dizzy. The confusion's a big thing. They may not really understand what's going on. They're going to have this increase in hunger uh, because the sugar levels are low. So what does the body do to protect itself? It knows that it needs to consume food to get those, those glucose levels up. There's going to be that thirst factor, um, pallor, headache, irritability. They might have some kind of trembling, sweating, uh, or even tachycardia. If this goes on untreated <coughs> excuse me, or unaddressed, we can look at loss of consciousness even into a coma. So when in doubt, we want to get this individual some food, glucose tablets, something that they can as quickly eat and absorb. Um, but we got to be cautious because if they're pretty bad off and we're worried about loss of consciousness, I certainly don't want to give them solid foods or anything where they could potentially choke on it. And then we've got an airway problem as well. Um, so liquid um, sugars like Gatorades are really great because they're easy to consume quickly. Um, or juices, fruit juices, orange juice is another great one. Um, it's just Gatorade to me is a really nice thing because it's shelf, it's shelf stable. It doesn't need to stand a refrigerator. It's something I can just keep in my kit. And I know it's probably not going to expire over the course of the season. Um, we just want to be careful though because we don't want to use like the G2 Gatorade, which is designed to be low carb, low sugar. We want to use regular Gatorade to get them up. Um, and once they get their sugar up, they will pretty much normalize fairly quickly. And then we can help them get the appropriate insulin levels to help adjust their flow and normalize and stabilize the situation. Another um, adverse effect would be diabetic ketoacidosis. You might see this abbreviated as DKA. Um, we really don't see this outside of type 1 diabetics. Um, you can, but we really don't see it that often. And so what this notes is that there's a shift from glucose to non-glucose energy sources. And as a result of this bioenergetic shift, now we've got this byproduct of fat metabolism that's occurring called ketones. Now, ketones are acidic, and usually we just can normally just flush them out through normal filtering processes of the kidneys. Uh, but if they build up long-term, they can cause damage to tissues and increase the blood acidity. <clears throat> what we see with someone, <coughs> excuse me, with diabetic ketoacidosis is hyperglycemia or higher sugar levels. They're going to be thirsty because they're trying to increase the, the flow of, of urine out the kidneys and filtering out those, that excess metabolic waste, including those ketones. And with that, they're going to get excess urination because they're drinking more to try to get rid of these ketones. They're going to have fatigue, blurred vision. One of the hallmark signs of fruity breath, it's going to smell, their breath is going to smell like fruit punch. Um, it's going to be very distinct. Um, nausea, they might have muscular stiffness, difficulty breathing, um, a flushed face, dry skin or mouth, again, because they're trying to drink so much to use whatever fluid they can to get rid of all that. Um, a rapid, weak pulse and a low blood pressure, again, Fluids are low because the body's trying to get rid of these ketones. So blood pressure volume is going to increase. So therefore, blood pressure is going to decrease. Um, if Again, if this is left unstable, it can progress to a coma or death. Now, if you are truly just at a, at a loss as to whether or not an individual is becoming more hyper or hypoglycemic, 
you can always give them more sugar. You're not going to make a hyperglycemic response any worse by giving more sugar, but you are going to make a hypoglycemic response better if you give them sugar. So it's okay to give more sugar, but understand if you're starting to not get a response, then I'm thinking more diabetic ketoacidosis, hyperglycemia, so a higher glucose level, um, and I need to get that insulin on board. Um, when we talk about insulin therapy, we do worry a little bit about what we call lipohypertrophy and lipoatrophy. So lipohypertrophy is when we actually start to get this increased amount of adipose tissue or fat tissue appearing at injection sites because of the insulin. Now, one of the effects of insulin is to promote fat growth. It's just a side effect of the hormone. So that's partly why we want to vary the site from time to time. We don't want to consistently always inject into the abdomen or into the glutes or wherever. We want to vary it so that we don't get this uh, hypertrophy of the adipose tissue. Um, if it does, the, the tissue can actually kind of harden and there actually needs to be some kind of surgical intervention to remove this, this, um, this dense um, adipose lump. The flip side again is that lipohyper or atrophy, excuse me, which is a breakdown of the adipose tissue, and it's more of an immune response um, to less pure varieties of insulin, such as like the animal derived insulins, which we don't see as much anymore. Uh, but it is something that we can start to see. Another kind of thing that we can see from time to time with insulin therapy are these localized skin reactions. Um, and they can go anywhere from just kind of this immediate flare reaction that goes away fairly quickly to a flare reaction that's followed by like four to eight hours of erythema or this localized redness. They can have delayed reactions where up to 12 to 24 hours later, then they see this kind of erythemic rash response to even sometimes full-blown uh, inflammatory, like localized inflammatory reactions. Generally speaking though, these go away over time. Um, as the patient gets used to insulin therapies. But if it truly still continues to be a problem, you could um, have the patient mix their insulin therapy with a corticosteroid um, or use some kind of antihistamine, um, a first-generation antihistamine, which we'll talk about in subsequent um, weeks when we start talking about antihistamines and, and allergies and things like that. <clears throat> All right. Um, switching gears a little bit to oral antidiabetic agents. So when we see oral antidiabetic agents, we're primarily thinking about diabetic uh, or type 2 diabetes. Uh, and there's several different kinds here. I'm not going to go through all of the kinds there are, but different types obviously react and work in different ways. And individuals may or may not respond well to certain kinds. The other side of it is, they're, like any other medication, there's side effects. And some people may not tolerate the side effects side of things as much as say um, just how it how it helps to control the uh, the diabetes the glucose levels um, so the first one is alpha glucosidase inhibitors and these basically try to target the mucosa of small intestines by inhibiting the breakdown of complex sugars like the polysaccharides and sucrose in saccharides um, these create a slower rate of digestion and helps to lower the postprandial blood sugar levels. So we're not spiking the blood sugar immediately after we eat. It slows down that process of absorption so that the blood sugar can slowly increase after a meal and thus slowly decrease after a meal. Um, another one is like metformin or glucophage. 
Um, these essentially look to lower glucose concentrations without causing hypoglycemia. They're, they're like maintenance kind of drugs. Um, and you may have heard of metformin being used for other, for other things, which it, it's used for many different things. But again, for today, we're talking about it in the case of diabetes. Um, it does decrease the hepatic glucose production. So that liver glucose production, it decreases glucose um, intestinal absorption and improves insulin sensitivity through increased peripheral glucose uptake and utilization. Um, another one is um, sulfonylureas. Uh, these are a little bit different. A lot of times these are, not a lot of times, these do have a lot of interactions with other medications. So it is important to note that if they're taking these, that this is well known and documented and that there's not any kind of um, uh, mismatch with other, with other medications that they might be taking. But essentially what they aim to do is decrease fasting plasma glucose levels by 50 to 70% um, and to decrease their um, hemoglobin A1C levels by one and a half to 1.7%. They do this through stimulating the release of insulin from those beta cells in the pancreas um, and enhance the beta cell sensitivity to the glucose. So now they're more uh, keen or affinitive towards that glucose and binding to it to help facilitate diffusion into the cell. Um, it can cause hypoglycemia though if it's not monitored correctly as well as weight gain. So we do need to be cognizant of those. That's one of those, those side effects that patients may not really like. Uh, but if this is the only drug that's working for them, they may have to deal with it. Um, some of the other side effects are might be headache, dizziness, and nausea. So kind of bringing this all together and tying in, this is a lot of information. This is a lot of stuff that's kind of beyond our immediate scope. So really, what is the role of the athletic trainer with regards to helping manage a diabetic patient? And really, it comes down to just two things. First one is understanding the individual patient's treatment plan. Understand it. Know what to do if something happens what is common for that patient, um, what's not common for that patient, understanding what kind of medications they use and what's their dosaging schedule, and understanding what their quote-unquote normal sugar levels are. I gave you guys some normal sugar levels earlier on, but understand that that may not be the hard and fast rule for every single person. Some person might naturally gravitate a little bit higher or lower, and they function just fine at those levels. And that's totally okay, but you need to know those because if they do kind of go into an altered state, um, altered mental state, you do need to be able to help them take their blood levels and understand and, and interpret if it's too high or too low for what's normal for them. The other thing that you need to make sure that you're, you're doing is having um, have a glucometer in your kit. You know how to use that glucometer. It's got batteries that are working and you've got glucose testing strips that are not expired. Um, a lot of times if they expire, they no longer work with the machine at all. So you've got to make sure that you check the expiration date and they don't have a super long shelf life. Um, so you need to make sure you really keep tabs on it. You need to have some kind of glucose or carbohydrate source in it. Those could be glucose tabs. Those could be a Gatorade. Um, it could be a combination of things, gummy bears. But again, I want to try to think of something that can, I can get into the body fairly quickly with minimal risk to choking and things like that. Because again, even if they might be able to chew, there still might be this altered sense of mental capacity that could help um, reduce their ability to just chew and swallow as well as fatigue and things like that, motor coordination. Um, so God, just to kind of give you an idea, um, like 
Gatorade. I, that's one of my go-tos to keep in my kit with diabetics. Again, not the G2, just plain old Gatorade. Um, is about a 6 to 8% carbohydrate solution. So 20 ounces should be able to kind of get someone out of um, this kind of diabetic hypoglycemic response long enough to help them get insulin into their system and figure out how much food they need to consume and, and stabilize their, um, their sugar levels. All right, that's all I got for you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out through... Um, learn and I will get back to you. Thanks.